0: Hi, this is your host Arielle. You're listening in to the second episode in my three-part installation examining climate change's impact on our national parks. Every episode features a different expert, each with a unique perspective on what climate change means for our green spaces and how we can best adapt. Last week, you heard a thought-provoking interview with Mr. Larry Perez, the communications coordinator for the National Park Service Climate Change Response Program. He tackles climate change in our parks from a social and communications aspect. Today, our featured expert is Ms. Patty Glick, who is a senior climate change specialist at the National Wildlife Federation. In this gripping conversation, she'll speak about climate change in parks from a scientific perspective. Come along with us to contemplate the heart-wrenching decisions that scientists make concerning the existence and extinction of entire species, as well as how Ms. Glick responds to climate change skeptics and her thoughts on the state of the battle against climate change today compared to 30 years ago. This is intense. Prepare yourself, take a deep breath, and turn it up. Thank you for taking yeah. the time to speak to me.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. I'm actually really thrilled that you're interested in this issue and interested in in journalism, and so I'm more than happy to chat with you about stuff.
0: Um, First, can you just describe your job and what you do for climate change? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so um, I, my title is actually Senior Scientist for Climate Adaptation, which generally means a lot of the work I do right now is focusing on coping with the impacts of climate change. Um, and in my work with the National Wildlife Federation, a lot of that is uh, working with um, wildlife experts and conservation practitioners just to help them better understand how some of the changes that we're al- already seeing and are expecting to see uh, in the future um, affect the work that they do. Um, but I've actually worked on the issue for about 30 years. Um, and I got my start more on the um, climate mitigation side of things. So dealing with the impacts of um Uh, or dealing with the emissions of greenhouse gases and how that's affecting the climate. So it's kind of spanned my career. It's kind of spanned the the wide range of possible solutions for climate change.
0: Mm -hmm. How has, so 30 years, that's a long time to be focusing on an issue that's kind of just coming up into the general public's knowledge. So how has your perception of this issue changed and how has the, Plan for combating climate change changed over these thirty years.
1: That's such a great question. Interestingly enough, I know for 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 younger people, um, such as yourself, uh, it probably does come as as a surprise that uh, the issue of climate change really was on at least some people's radar screens thirty years ago. In fact, at the time, which was in the early nineteen nineties, climate change was starting to get a lot of attention. Um, Part of it was the um, development of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Sometimes you may have heard that as the Rio Convention. Um, But then of course, there was also uh, the release of Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance. And that was in the early nineties. And that really, when I, I was just finishing graduate school and to me, it struck me just how fundamentally human activities can be affecting our planet i've always cared about nature and and wildlife and the environment but that was like wow you mean we're fundamentally altering our planet's climate system so i just was interested in the issue from the start um you know certainly a lot of the talk early on was on the mitigation side of things um you know, I think at the time, we thought that a lot of the impacts that we're seeing now probably wouldn't have happened for another 20 years from now. But over my career, it was becoming increasingly clear that we were talking at the same time we we're trying to convince people to reduce emissions. We're also starting to talk about all these changes that we're starting to see. And it was occurring to me that, um, geez, shouldn't we all already you know, start talking about dealing with those impacts too. And for a while, some of my colleagues in the conservation community would say, no, we can't talk about adaptation because it means, you know, it'll look like we're giving up. But we at the National Wildlife Federation, where I've been for now 23 plus years, um, realized that we really had to do both at the same time. So that's really what we've been doing. And Because there's so much concern on the part of wildlife managers about what they're seeing and how they're going to handle it, I've started to just focus a lot of my own attention on the adaptation side and then have a lot of colleagues who do more work on the the energy side.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me. I know that um, these issues of conservation versus preservation have been kind of a hot topic for national parks and dealing with climate change in our natural spaces. So where does adaptation fall onto that? I mean, depending on how you view it, a spectrum or sort of a dichotomy?
1: Well, you know, it's very much, I think, a spectrum. You can think about um, adaptation um, outcomes or what what we're hoping to do, you know, if I'm thinking about national parks or, you know, um, wildlife managers our outcomes probably are going to fall along a spectrum from persistence you know maintaining persistence of endangered species or a park as we've known it historically all the way to managing for change you know envisioning future um changing conditions and either in some cases maybe having to accept those changes in others, maybe we can actually do things to help move systems along in such a way that they will still support a lot of the things that we um, we value from them. For example, you may have a forest that may look a bit different from a forest, you know, from several hundred years ago. But it still may be a forest if we do um, things like plant trees that are going to survive better as the conditions change, if that makes sense. So, yeah, um, it, it is changing, uh, you know, the, the idea that we can protect everything and preserve everything like it was or restore things back to the way they were, um, which has been a long of restoration. That's definitely been kind of tipped on its head with a changing climate. But I do think that the field of adaptation has um, has definitely brought out some creative thinking on a lot of scientists and managers together to try and, and find creative ways to make sure that we can protect what we can and, and maybe at least keep things positive to the extent that it's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's been some controversy around this idea of um having to choose which parks to let go like um triage is the word that people are using to describe these these terrible decisions that we're being forced to make so i mean what are your thoughts on these decisions and what are the criteria for which parks are triaged
1: yeah it's an important question um i one thing i do think is important to recognize is that, you know, we, we have um, throughout our, our history of conservation had to make some tough decisions. Climate change is certainly making some of, you know, upping the game in a number of places, but we, you know, have limited resources. We've always had to prioritize and we, we've also always had to make decisions under uncertainty. Um, I, think, I I think in particular from a climate change perspective, the idea of triage is, is going to require a lot of um, partnerships between scientists who can help managers say what um, you know is possible to save and managers, and who also liaise with the public who decide, well, what do we want to say? What do we value? So from the science perspective, we can say, yes, this particular animal is probably no longer going to be able to survive in this, in this park in 10 or 20 years. Um, it's up to them, but we think it might survive hundred miles further North. It's up for the managers and the public to say, okay, We really value the species. We don't want to see the species blink out. So let's focus our attention, even if we're not going to work to protect it in this one place where it always was. Let's work with partners 100 miles north of here and see if we can either move that species or help it along the way, if it can get there on its own, survive up there. But it's going to take, um, you know, it's going to take identifying what the trade-offs of that are. It's going to take recognizing what our values are as a society and ultimately having to prioritize on those decisions and i do think for some national parks for example it's going to mean that they're going to have to let some things go um, and put resources into those other things that we can at least least either buy time for or pool resources and and really put an effort to to protect Mm
0: -hmm. and You work with the National Wildlife Federation. So just how big of a role do humans play in the survival of different plant and animal species? I mean, is there really like do are we really the difference between the extinction and the survival of an entire species?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the answer is definitely yes, um, right now. And we we live in an era that's known as the Anthropocene. You know, certainly we've had throughout the history of our planet, there have been, quote unquote, natural species extinctions um, for various reasons. But really, the human fingerprint on, on nature is so pervasive. And because of climate change, it's even in places where humans don't very typically set, set, set foot on, you know, places like the, the high Arctic and the Antarctica. So, um, you know, I really do think that it is up to us um, to steward our natural world. And I, I think it is, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I as a, a, a wildlife expert in conservation is probably, Fear the most is that during my lifetime, some species may well go extinct, that I had hoped that my work would have helped prevent. Um, I think all of those who of us who work in this field probably have that fear. But on the other hand, I really do think that if we are mindful, Um, and, and we can collectively decide that we want to do the best we can to keep as many species, um, as we possibly can for as long as we can, that we can do that. Um, you know, we're an innovative species ourselves and we're a caring species, human beings. And, um, you know, so that's probably what gives me the most hope. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you started, um, thinking about climate change and its effects on wildlife and natural spaces and resources um, in the 90s and people started formulating plans to confront this pressing issue uh, which at the time wasn't quite as well known as it is even though you Mm -hmm. mentioned that it was still on people's radars um how well would you assess that we've done following those plans have we Have we done a good job of sticking to the plan and or adapting the plans in order to confront this issue?
1: I would say if I had thought we would still be where we are, and that is with not nearly enough having been done on emissions today 30 years ago, I don't I would have been really surprised, I thought we would be much further along just as as a global society in tackling the threat. I think there have been several challenges and there have been several things that have have been on the positive side. And certainly there was a lot that we knew from a scientific perspective about the effects that the buildup of um, greenhouse gases were having on temperatures. But the science was still pretty uncertain about what the implications of that were. Um, Models have improved tremendously over the past few decades. So the um, ability for scientists to project changes has gotten much better. So so there is better certainty in some of those predictions. And then, as I mentioned, we've already started to see a lot of the impacts from sea level rise to the worsening wildfires to extreme drought. the continued rise in, in temperatures that, you know, kind of back up that science. So then the, the, more scientific, certainly certainty, I think um, has, has been a real positive, but at the same time, we've just had a lot of forces um, working against us on the progress on mitigation, partly politics, um, partly, you know, corporations that have really fought against it because it means change for them. Um, Partly, I think even for the public, thinking that the impacts are still so far away in the future that it doesn't really matter. I think that because we've been starting to see such significant changes on the ground with, um, you know, extreme events and such that that public desire for action has started to turn around. And I think because of that, we will continue to see improvements on the political side of things, because I very strongly believe that um, the most powerful way that we can um, forward meaningful public policy is to get grassroots support. Uh, I don't think it comes from the top down um, as much as our system may support that top down approach. It's one of the reasons I joined the National Wildlife Federation because the organization has long um, built its work around educating the public and inspiring the public to care about wildlife and to give people the tools to be a voice for wildlife. And I think, um, you know, it's why I've stayed at the organization as as long as I have. I think even in, in some, maybe not, you know, astronomical ways but I think in some small ways we've we've made a difference um on this and and so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that but I do as a society wish that we were further along on tackling this issue
0: mm-hmm. what what kinds of strategies does the wildlife federation use to get um this complex climate information out and accessible to the general public and are there different methods that they use for different groups of people like younger kids versus adults?
1: Very, very different approaches and quite wide-ranging approaches exactly as you suggest. It depends on the audience. It depends, um, you know, we, we've done a lot of the work that I've actually done for the organization has been what I call science translation. So it's taking some of the complicated factors about climate change and its impacts um, and kind of boiling it down for different audiences. So um, I wrote a book called the Bird Watcher's Guide to Global Warming uh, in partnership with a, a scientist who at the time was at the American Bird Conservancy. And that was geared towards bird watchers. That was geared towards people like my mom who loved the brown thrasher in Georgia and the idea that the brown thrasher might no longer be able to survive in Georgia in a few decades because of climate change. That, you know, it made some good media hits. It just, you know, it, it, it really spoke to people who care about that. Then on the other, you know, and we've done some articles in, in our magazines as well. Um, even Ranger Rick has had a few um, episodes about climate change. Um, but at the other end of that, we work very closely, for example, with scientists at, at places like the National Park Service, which is much more high level. That's much more sophisticated. But that's intended for that audience. And those on-the-ground practitioners to understand the science and what it means for the work that they do. So it's pretty wide-ranging, um, but it's it's kept my job interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you confront misinformation or skepticism about climate change?
1: I used to um, try to convince true skeptics a lot harder than I do now. I, I do think that there are people who simply just don't have the knowledge and you know I when you know if if unless somebody says, oh, this is just bogus, I don't believe it, if they say, well, I really don't understand it, I'll help them along and help them understand it. But I but I used to beat my head on the wall a bit with people who I think are just not gonna change their minds. And do I wish that everybody made decisions based on, based on science and fact and you know with new information would change their minds. Yes. And I think there are those out there, but uh, I don't really spend time trying to convince people. I don't think want to be convinced. Um, I think there's enough we can do with the people who do care, provide them with the tools and, and, you know, and information that they need to, uh, to make a change to do so.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know part of your work is Assessing different parks um, and analyzing their vulnerability, and I'm curious about what criteria do you use to determine how vulnerable certain parks are?
1: So it very much depends. Vulnerability assessments, it's kind of a broad general um, tool to understand how climate change may affect the things that we're working uh, on. So whether that's a species or, you know, a certain habitat or a bridge or, um, you know, a whole community. Um, So there's no real one size fits all approach to doing that. A lot of what the parks have been doing is looking at um, what's called scenario planning. So they look at vulnerabilities. And again, it depends if they're looking at say an aquatic species, they'll, they'll look at things like water temperatures and changes in stream flow and um, things like that. Um, But they'll look at both the kind of low range of projected change and high range of projected change because some some of the things we actually don't know whether the low end or the high end is going to happen in part because we don't know what's going to happen with the emissions. So they've been, um, we've been working with them to help them understand what some of those ranges are and, and think about how they would work to protect or manage their resources in light of those. And it's kind of like asking what if questions. Questions. What if this happens? Then maybe we'll do X, Y, and Z. What if that happens? Then we can still do X and Y, but we may need to do J or something like that. Um, so it's a kind of a unique approach that the Park Service has has taken, but it's one I think that has been really effective for a lot of their managers to think outside of the box and to think, um, you know, about things that they may not have thought even plausible, but could happen and if it did what would that mean Mm -hmm.
0: is there any um are there any specific ways that climate change is affecting individual ecosystems and specific species and are there any ways that climate change is affecting like all species as a whole
1: no again it's it's it quite a wide-ranging um array of 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 change. I mean, so when we talk about, for example, the the response of of species in general to a change in climate, be it warmer temperatures, say, you can somewhat generalize that species may be um, shifting their ranges, say, closer to the poles. You know, so in our hemisphere, f- further um, northward, or to higher elevations in order to track those temperature changes. And there's evidence that kind of at a big scale that that is happening. But there are definite exceptions to that, which is why scientists really need to work um, with, you know, the on the ground folks uh, to better understand some of the localized um, uh, uh, influences and sensitivities of different species. For example, they've found in, in parts of California where they're expected some vegetation to be moving upward in in um, elevation as temperatures are warming they're finding that changing precipitation patterns also due to climate change are causing shifts to happen in the opposite direction so you can kind of generalize you know another place to generalize is with rising sea levels low-lying areas pretty much globally are certainly vulnerable But areas where, say, there are cliffs or human communities along the edge of those um, coastal areas, those places are likely more vulnerable because those habitats don't have a place to move. So that's another example of kind of big picture changes happening, like sea level rise and temperature changes. But the impacts are going to be somewhat variable depending on where you are and depending on what those conditions are and depending on what those habitats or species, um, you know, how they respond to to specific changes.
0: Interesting. And you mentioned that um, even like 30 years ago, um, there were models to predict climate change and those have been slowly improving, but I'm wondering if there are any surprises that scientists didn't anticipate that we're experiencing right now.
1: Oh, I tell you, I think, you know, cause I'm, I live in central Oregon. You've probably heard on the news, all the fires that we're seeing. This is last year was one of the worst years we've ever had um, here in the state, including parts of the West. And I think that took a lot of scientists by surprise how quickly and how much change is, is happening in forest systems. And already we're on track to have a worse year this year. And I'm kind of looking outside and it's, smoky, we don't have any fires really close to us, but the fires, you know, the smoke is just kind of ubiquitous. And so, yeah, I think the extreme events, um, I think the the, extreme, ex, the extent of extreme wildfires, the um, fact that we're having both um, much worse um, drought conditions at the same time we're seeing extreme heat together, I think that's caught a lot of scientists by surprise. I think that For a long time, there was a lot of uncertainty about what climate change meant for hurricanes, but recent evidence is really starting to also paint a picture that warmer oceans are feeding stronger um, uh, hurricanes as well. So all of these things are are, are things I, again, I think when we were looking at the science and the projections um, in, in the early 90s, a lot of the science would talk about Oh, this is what I think will happen when we, if we see a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from pre-industrial levels. So, say upper 400, 500 parts per million. We're seeing a lot of changes worse than what they projected then today, and we're at 400 or so parts per million. So, I think I think the the impacts are um, certainly uh, what scientists probably are increasingly allowing them to say, and that's uh, alarming. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I I think we also had hoped we would be much further along on the the climate policy front. Um, But just the the politics of the issue, not just here in the United States, but around the world have been really challenging.
0: Are you nervous about the trajectory of climate change and what it looks like for the future? Or do you think that we're going to get a grip on it have a handle on it are you are you worried um
1: so since you don't work for a federal agency or anything yet i can say i'm less worried now that we have a new president uh than i was during the last because we really lost a lot of um we we missed a lot of opportunities uh just given just the the outright science you know what I would say was a war on science and denial of the, the challenge. Um, I think there's a lot of leadership right now that um, is really wanting to move things forward. So I'm feeling much more hopeful than I was, even if, if we, we had chatted a year ago. Um, but that said, uh, you know, dealing with the impacts we're already experiencing um, is a challenge so even if we were to stop emissions tomorrow like completely pull the plug um i think we still have a lot of work to do um on the other hand i think that there is a lot of um there's has been a lot of innovation in and in terms of clean energy um in terms of understanding how to protect ecosystems so that they help sequester and store carbon and um i think i think that with the right investments, that we're going to see a real, um, a real important uh, improvement in in where things are. So I hope I I'm definitely feeling more hopeful.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's that's good to hear. It's a relief for my yeah. generation. But um, speaking of um, clean energy methods that are kind of up and coming, um, I believe you had like a research. Article about bioenergy feedstocks. Can you just explain yeah,
1: briefly yeah. what that means? Yeah. Um, so there are, I, there's no silver bullet solution that um, doesn't have some potential downsides. Um, one of those is uh, bioenergy. There has, you know, there's a, a school of thought, and, and it's a valid one in some ways, that um, you know, growing feedstocks for, you know, that you can burn as energy um, as they grow, they sequester carbon. Yeah, it releases some carbon when you burn it, but it's more efficient, say, than burning a gallon of gasoline. You know, in principle, that's a neat idea. And in fact, in Europe, they're actually taking a lot of trees from the American Southeast and burning it in pellets. But there, But there are some downsides. Sides to that. Um, If you think about that just from the energy side of things, you may think that oh, let's just take the fastest growing and invasive plants we can possibly find and put them everywhere, and then we'll we can cut all those down, and and that'll be our energy. Bad things about that is it takes away habitat. It's not good for wildlife. It can use a lot of water. So you know, I think. We need to find ways to balance some of those trade offs. Um, you know, same can be said, you, you might hear, um, you know, some negative things about wind, wind power. And I think we have to be very mindful about where we locate wind power, um, you know, uh, facilities so that you minimize the adverse impacts on things like raptors and, and bats. Um, Those decisions, luckily, I mean, I think think one of the things about our, you know, generations of people who have been dependent on fossil fuels is, at the time we were developing those fuels, we didn't necessarily know the adverse impact that that was going to have. Over time, we've learned that, unfortunately, over time, we've also learned that we've become so dependent on it, that it's going to be really hard to change. But we're at a time right now where we're at kind of an an early stage in these new technologies and we know of enough about science more so than we did even 200 years ago um that I think that we can ask the right questions up front and hopefully minimize uh the negative impacts that that might occur so um you know it's again there's I don't think there's any one perfect um, choice. I think one of the best things we can do is invest in efficiency because no matter what kind of um, product is producing our energy efficiency is like, that's a no brainer to me. Um, More efficient cars, more efficient homes, that kind of thing. But yeah, um, there, there are some potential downsides to things like bioenergy that we're, my organization is really um, doing a lot of work on.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, those are some big corporate changes that seem necessary for preventing, you know, further damage from climate change, but what are some smaller individual changes that the average citizen could possibly do?
1: you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, um, probably in the work that I've done, um, for the National Wildlife Federation, have focused more on than the big policy stuff because I really do feel like um, we as individual citizens, if we feel empowered that we can make a difference in our in our own lives, I think that um, that gives us the um, the confidence and and the strength to um, to. You know, ask our elected officials to make the bigger choices. So it it, it may be just as as simple as you know, changing your light bulbs in your home. It's amazing how much energy you can save um, by changing your light bulbs, by turning lights off. It kind of sounds like we, when we were in the, back in the 1970s, which is probably before even your parents were born, um, when we had um, some, you know, energy shortages that they were talking about, but it can make a real difference. And there's been a lot of improvements in things like, um, you know, LCD bulbs. Um, I, I have also, um, another thing that I wrote, it was a, a, a few years after I did the, the bird watchers guide, I wrote what's called the gardener's guide to global warming. Cause I'm a big gardener and that, um, also has a lot of ideas, both in terms of reducing your, your household energy use. So using a push mower instead of a gas mower, um, but it also has some of the adaptation stuff because as gardeners, we sort of recognize that we're seeing impacts. We recognize that we have less water to use. So putting in more drought um, resistant plants in your garden so you don't have to irrigate as much. Um, and then even uh, being citizen scientists and letting letting your community you know, bird organization know that you saw something that you'd never seen before in your, in your trees. Um, that, that helps scientists monitor what's happening with, with, with animals with a in climate. So, yeah, I think there, you know, I, I look at when I was growing up, the big, the big environmental challenge that we had was convincing our parents to recycle. And now, I mean, every. As far as I, I hope everybody recycles. It's like, a, if you know, you think about it, it's like brushing your teeth. You recycle, right? So maybe um, as we start hearing more about um, the things that we can do, is in households and communities, will will start. It'll start seeming like normal.
0: Yeah, that gives me hope to know that there's things that we as individuals can do, and not just feel powerless in the wake of this massive changes that are coming um is there anything else that you'd like to add that you think is important for the general public to know about your work or wildlife or climate change well I mean
1: actually I I would just love to ask you a question about how you came to be interested in this issue and what what you envision um as as your role just today um do you do you feel uh do you feel nervous about things? Do you feel hopeful? Are you um, wanting to commit a career to the issue? What what, I'm just really interested in hearing from you.
0: Yeah, thank you for asking (laughs) me that. Um, Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm terrified. And I think a lot of adults Mm -hmm. think that it's sort of just like a textbook nervousness, something that makes you sort of uncomfortable, like reading about some uncomfortable like earthquake or natural event that happened in the news, but it's not it's like a real visceral terror that I think me and a lot of other youth are experiencing when we hear about mm. the glaciers melting yeah down. also i'm hopeful I'm hopeful because there are adults like you who are doing this work and there are children like me who can't do this work but our job as children is to speak to our adults and tell them like but listen to the science like just our job is to be advocates and that's what i see myself and my podcast as is advocacy i'm not trying to preach science to anybody because i'm leaving that to experts like you but i want people Mm -hmm. to know that us youth we're scared but we're hopeful and we just want you to listen to the scientists
1: well i really i congratulate you uh on your vision and doing this you the very very insightful questions i think you did just an amazing job building on what i brought to the table because you know i never know what you're gonna ask and you don't know what i'm gonna say but it was a really really fantastic conversation and i'd love to give you support in in any way that you need it
0: This was a fantastic conversation and I truly appreciate Ms. Glick's insightful expertise. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode in my three-part series examining climate change's impact on our national parks from three unique expert perspectives. Stay tuned for part three and thanks for listening to Park Wake Up Call.